let's ask God to help us now uh, as we come to his word. Our true and living God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, uh, that in its teaching is life through faith in Jesus, uh, life found in following Jesus. And so we pray uh, in the weakness of my speaking and in the weakness of our hearing that you would speak to us, you would give us conviction of its truth and understanding of what it means and that knowing your word, uh, we would be followers of Jesus for life. We ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, Being a Christian is good. Uh, I hope you know that for yourselves, and if you don't, I hope you come to know it. Knowing forgiveness, having a secure identity and a life that has meaning, being able to call the living God our Father and know that you are heard by him when you pray to him, being assured of his steadfast love, being in a community with a commitment to love and more, like hope of resurrection. In our culture, though, focused as it is on the present, even for believers, that future hope is often left in the background, a kind of afterthought. It's all about present benefit. But for Christians in other parts of the world, where their confession costs, where it can mean social exclusion, abuse, loss of work, even imprisonment and violence, where their experience is often one of present difficulty and hardship, A focus on present benefits really doesn't make a lot of sense by itself. And it didn't make a lot of sense for the Apostle Paul, for whom being a Christian meant hardship and suffering, being treated in his words like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. In fact, he writes, as you see on the screen in 1 Corinthians 15, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. For Paul, the Christian life, as you heard last week, was a race to be run to win the prize at the end, what he calls the imperishable crown. That that crown, the prize at the end of our race, was of such value that both present suffering and present benefits pale into insignificance when compared with what will be. Now, it's hard for us to describe and feel the full wonder and goodness of what will be, just as it's hard for a baby in the womb to describe the richness of the life it will soon enter. With its very limited experience of life, it's hard for a baby in the womb to imagine a world with the light of the sun, with colour and movement and conversation, that indescribably richer world for which womb life has prepared it. Never having experienced any other than a world marred by sin, a mind and body twisted with self-love, never having drunk undiluted goodness, seen unfading beauty, we find it hard to imagine the greatness of what will be the prize for which believers run their race, although we have hints of it in Scripture. 
So Paul, for example, can describe the defeat of death in our being given bodies animated by God's spirit, bodies like Christ's glorious body, incorruptible, immortal and mighty. And Revelation gives us a glimpse of a world of light where there'll be no death or grief, crying or pain, when God will wipe every tear from our eye, a life without violence or fear, a time when we can rest, rest from our struggle with sin and its effects. That prize, says Paul, is worth exercising self-control in all things, worth keeping on running with purpose. And if you have ever felt the grief and horror of death or found yourself wounded by sin beyond healing in this life, and that happens, well, you know that Paul is right. In fact, he writes, I do not run, says Paul, like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified in this race. Now, that's intense language, isn't it? This language of bringing his body under strict control. It's the language, isn't it, of the Olympic athlete. And we can admire those athletes, can't we? Their focus and self-discipline, but think, actually, that's not for me. I'm just not made for those 4.30 a.m. starts, for training before work, that self-denial, that repetitive exercise. I'd rather be what I am, the spectator on the couch. And that's the way we can think about what Paul says about the Christian life here. And earlier in 1 Corinthians 9, in chapter 9, I mean, we can admire his focus on sharing the gospel, can't we? Becoming all things to all people so that by all means he might save some. We can admire him denying himself his rights, foregoing what he's entitled to for the sake of others. We can admire the self-control that sustains that way of life, the passionate conviction and self-discipline. We can admire it and say, that's Paul, he's awesome but it's not me. I'm more comfortable, saved and secure on the couch. But Paul's point is that every believer has to run that race, run focused on the prize. Every believer has to exercise that self-control in all things if they're not to be disqualified. And to make that point, he's going to get us and the Corinthians to think about the experience of God's Old Testament people in the Exodus. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. See, Paul writes of the experience of the Exodus generation in a way that makes clear the relation of their experience to our experience as believers in Jesus. He calls them our ancestors, our forefathers. And that's not because most of the Corinthian believers were Jews. Some were, but many were not. It's because there's a continuity between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God as the people of the same God caught up in the one saving plan. Now, says Paul, that Exodus generation had a great miraculous beginning, experiencing for themselves God's rescue of them from slavery in Egypt by his saving presence in the cloud and his victory over Pharaoh 
at the Red Sea. And we see that in Exodus 14. We, we learn there that the Israelites saw the Egyptian army closing in on them. They felt the fear. And then, well, they experienced the protection of the cloud's presence between them and Pharaoh and saw the Lord part the Red Sea. They walked through with the water on both sides. And the next day, they went out to see the bodies of the Egyptian army on the shore. Now, that was a pretty impressive beginning, wasn't it, for their journey with God. And in that experience, in that rescue, they were baptised into Moses, had become followers of Moses, people who related to God as their God through the revelation God gave through Moses. And they had known God sustaining them in their journey to the promised land under Moses' leadership. God had provided them spiritual food, manna from heaven. Spiritual not because it's immaterial, but because its origin is in the work of God's powerful spirit. He was the source of that food, their sustainer, when all normal material means of sustenance had failed. And Paul says they drank spiritual drink, drank the water from the rock provided by God's spirit. And to heighten the link, the relationship between that generation's experience and the believer's experience, Paul says, and that rock was Christ, was a a type of Christ who brings us sustaining life, the sustaining life of the Spirit from his death, just as the sustaining water was brought from that lifeless rock. So theirs was a great beginning, just as the Corinthians had a great beginning with Christ. Being enriched, says Paul in his introduction in chapter 1, in every way, in all speech and all knowledge, not lacking any spiritual gift. And that wilderness generation had a wonderful sustaining, just as the Corinthians knew God's provision for sustaining them on their journey through Christ, through continuing to share in the benefits of his death, as symbolised and mediated in the bread and drink of the Lord's Supper, of which Paul goes on to speak. Nevertheless, says Paul, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. A great beginning, wonderful ongoing provision, but most didn't make it to the promised goal. Most were disqualified by death from entering the promised land. Now, why were they struck down in the wilderness? Why, having started so well, did they fail to come to their goal, the promised land? And why is their experience relevant to the Corinthians and to us? Well, let's start with the last question. Why is Israel's Exodus experience relevant to us? Well, Paul states in verses 6 and verse 11 that these things happen to them as examples for us. The story of the Exodus generation, you see, provides a pattern that corresponds to what is or can happen in the life of the believer in Jesus. gives us an example that tells us how God will respond to certain actions of his people. And this is not by chance, verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and they were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. 
these things have been written down for us. That is, yes, us, all believers. For every believer in Jesus is someone on whom the ends of the ages have come. Someone who's living in the overlap between this present evil age and the age to come, which the Lord Jesus has ushered in by his resurrection and pouring out of the Spirit on his people. God had us in mind when he caused Moses to write down the events of the Exodus. The Old Testament is our God's provision for our instruction and encouragement. And its teaching value is not an after-the-event discovery, but the product of God's intention at the time, written down for our instruction. The record of Israel's experience is relevant to us because the Lord intended it to be relevant to us He intends us to learn from it. And in a sense, that's the first big takeaway from this passage if you're a believer. If you are not reading your Old Testament, you are neglecting God's provision for your perseverance to gain the prize. God has caused it to be written so that we could know him, know how to trust him, and know the life that is pleasing to him. And so, as you hear that, Are you making use of it? Do you read your Old Testament? And a good test might be, do you know these events that Paul speaks of here in this passage? And if not, well, a good start would be reading them in Exodus and Numbers, reading them and reflecting on them. You see, Scripture's better than TV or video games. Those things give you an imaginative world, a world seen through the eyes and recreated in the worldview of their makers, fallen and fallible people like us. But the scriptures give you reality. The world is made and interpreted to us by the living God who is truth. If you are not reading your Old Testament, you are neglecting God's provision for you, for you to live. Well, let's go on and learn the lesson God has given these particular scriptures to teach us. Why was most of that Exodus generation struck down in the wilderness? Why, having started so well, did they fail to come to the promised land? What does their experience tell us as believers in Jesus we must avoid? Well, Paul says, so that we will not desire, verse 6, not desire evil as they did. So Paul starts by telling us that the problem started in their hearts with what they longed for, what they let themselves crave, what they could not discipline themselves to deny. And then he gives us, as you heard, four examples of their evil desire at work two of their actions and two of their attitudes so that we would never act or think like them. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Paul is referring to Mount Sinai where the Israelites made and worshipped a golden calf. You see that verse 4, Exodus 32. Aaron took gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool (coughs) and made it into an image of a calf and they said, these are your gods. And then 
Paul quotes Exodus 32.6 to remind us that their idolatry was expressed in worship that involved sacrifice, eating and drinking, and then immoral revelry. Now, the Israelites' worship of the golden calf was a great affront to the living God. You see, they had already eaten and drunk his spiritual food and drink, but here they were giving praise for their rescue to something that they had made, likening the living God to the dead product of their imagination and their hands and preferring its food to God's provision. A great offence, and that idolatry almost led to Israel's destruction as a people because you can't be God's people and worship other gods. Now, of course, this first example is very pointed for the Corinthians because the issue this section started with in chapter 8 and with which you heard our passage finish concerns food sacrificed to idols, some feeling free to eat in idol temples. But you might be thinking to yourself, idolatry, not my issue. You know, while I might have some Hindu or Buddhist friends or family, I'm never going to worship a statue. I I don't think idols are anything real. Now, some of the Corinthians thought that an idol's nothing, but they still weren't safe in that knowledge, as we'll see. And actually, if you're thinking like that, you're actually thinking too narrowly about idolatry. As Rosner says, a god is what one loves, trusts and serves, what one looks to for ultimate identity and security. And so you can make a relationship an idol. You can make, as our Lord said, money an idol. Or you can make an idol of your autonomy or your feelings, loving yourself and your own freedom above God, trusting yourself and your judgments of right and wrong above his word. We mustn't be idolaters. Next, Paul draws their attention to the behaviour of Israel and God's response at a place called Baal Peor on the borders of the promised land recounted in Numbers 25. Let's not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. Now, Israelite men engaged at Baal Peor in sexual immorality with Moabite women, wrong in itself, which then led into participating, verse 2, in the sacrifices and feasts that were involved in worshipping their gods. And thousands died. Believers in the Lord Jesus must not commit sexual immorality and expect to come to their prize. Remembering that sexual immorality is any sexual activity that takes place outside the context of marriage, a public commitment with witnesses between a man and a woman. Now, Paul has already made that clear in chapters 5 and 6 where he says, flee from sexual immorality. But Israel's experience reminds them of the dangers and also that uncontrolled sexual desire can easily lead to idolatry. And that is what we often see ourselves. The determination to satisfy sexual desire, hetero or homosexual desire, leads many to worship a God of their own creating. You see, that desire is so strong that they'd actually rather change God than exercise self-control. 
change to a God who endorses their behaviour or at least turns a blind eye to it. And even if they still claim that this God is the Christian God, that's not true. Their God is not the living God who created us male and female and has spoken and expressed his will for sexual expression in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, not the living God who does not change and who expects his people to love him by doing his will, not by doing what pleases them. They've changed to worship an idol that will permit them to pursue their desires. Paul then moves to the incident you heard read from Numbers 21 to speak of the attitudes desiring evil can foster in our relationship with the living God. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. In Numbers 21, you heard the Israelites speak against God and Moses saying, why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread or water and we detest this wretched food. Now Paul calls this testing Christ. It's testing because it's finding fault with God's provision and direction and demanding that he should be satisfying their appetites and desires. Oh yeah, they're getting food, sustenance, manna, this wretched food, but it's not what they desire. Instead, they demand God give them what they want because in their view, his provision was detestable and his way of trusting and following his chosen leader Moses, the way of death. This testing God is the presumption that started with Adam and Eve who decided they knew better than God what was best for them, what would give them the life they desired. And from that time on, many have thought that God's role, if he's to have a role in their lives at all, is to listen to them and to take direction from them. To, in a sense, let them be God and God be content to be the servant of their desires, to do what they ask him when they ask. And Paul calls it testing Christ because the Israelites said in Numbers 21.7, as you heard, that they have tested the Lord. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 has already, as he does elsewhere, identified the Lord with Jesus Christ. This way of speaking strengthens the link between the Israelites' experience and the experience of new covenant believers because we are testing the Lord when we demand the Lord Jesus should do things our way, make the provision for us we demand, give us what we desire if we are to reckon him God, his way, the way of life and him worthy of worship. So you see, when we demand that, say, he fulfil our desire for wealth or our desire for a life partner or children or health and not bring us on the path he has chosen, a path that, like his own, may involve suffering and self-denial, a path of trusting our Father God even when it means we feel like we are dying. When we demand those things, we are testing the Lord. Now, like Bread and water, all those things, good health, a life, they are good things. 
But to say that the Lord is only good and wise if he fulfills our desires, that his is the way of life only when he gives us what we want when we want it, is to test the Lord, demand he prove himself to us on our terms. Such testing is to despise what God has already done for us in giving his son for us, and it is a repudiation of the repentance and faith the gospel calls for. To, you know, to, well, it's actually to go back to putting ourselves in the place of God. And that, of course, will disqualify us from the prize. And closely related to testing the Lord is the fourth of the sins that caused those who started so well to perish in the wilderness. Don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. If testing the Lord is demanding of God, complaining to God, then grumbling is complaining about God and his provision to each other. It's that undercurrent of articulated discontent to each other that eventually surfaces in open criticism of God. And it's something that's spoken of in Numbers, chapters 11, 14 and 16, and in each case it ends with the death of many. So in Numbers 14, the people openly criticise God's plan to occupy the land and the leadership that he's provided if only we had died in Egypt. And in number 16, they criticise the leaders appointed by God, outraged by the Lord's judgment on Korah and his followers. You can read about that. Grumbling is that critical attitude that says, I have a right to judge God and condemn his servants when they speak his word. The attitude that rejects God's actions and words as good. At its heart is pride the pride that is sure we are more righteous and knowledgeable than God and desires to be in control because we know we can do a better job than God. This grumbling condemns God and demands he change his ways to our ways. How could God let that happen, we say? Oh, how could God judge any? Now, we see a lot of grumbling in the world, this open criticism of God. But sadly, you can actually see it in people in church. Perhaps even you have been tempted by it. I can't believe God. I can't believe God would deny someone the expression of their love. Oh, how could God ask that of me when, you know, ask me to honour difficult parents? to love a difficult spouse, to be honest, forgiving one who has so hurt me, even, well, expose myself by loving my neighbour. How could God ask that of me when it is so hard? Idolatry, sexual immorality, putting the Lord to the test, grumbling, all these stopped those who started so well with such powerful salvation experiences from entering the promised land. And all those things will stop you and I from attaining the prize, stop us from being victorious in our race, from entering the new heaven and earth. And so Paul concludes these scriptural examples of failure by calling us to consider our position 
to consider the grounds of our confidence. So whoever thinks he stands or she stands must be careful not to fall. You see, there were some at Corinth who were very confident of their spiritual status, of their knowledge, of their being saved, able to stand on the last day. It was a confidence that allowed them to criticise Paul for his ministry, a confidence that allowed them to act on their rights without regard for the consciences of those weaker in the faith, a confidence that made them feel free, feel they were safe in the exercise of their freedom, that all things were permissible for them, even frequenting prostitutes or eating in idle temples. A confidence that they were safe, secure in the judgment without the focus or self-control of Paul. So Paul says to them, consider the scriptures. Is your confidence justified? But actually he's saying that to each one of us as well. This is a call to each of us to see if those behaviours are in our life. You see, we can be very self-deceived about our spiritual security. I know that for myself. You can be teaching God's word and yet doing things God forbids. Even doing those very things you are telling others not to and justifying it because of the unique value of your work or thinking God will make an exception of you because of your unique gifts. And you don't have to be someone famous like Ravi Zacharias to be trapped in that self-deception. Or you can be excusing your sexual immorality because of how right it feels and so telling yourself it must be good and sanctioned by God. Or claiming that because you're in the right standing for the truth, you have a right to ignore the needs of others to act lovelessly. We can be in church every week, never doubting our spiritual standing, but becoming bitter because God hasn't answered our prayers in the way we wanted. Or confident of the righteousness of our own conscience, we can be openly criticising what God has said, say, about judgment or sexual morality while claiming to be a good, devout Christian. And we can be doing these things that will disqualify us and yet be sure we'll be okay in the judgment because of our experience of becoming a Christian, our good beginning, or because of our Bible knowledge or our giftedness or our long habit of involvement. Be careful, says Paul. Be careful. And don't excuse your sin by claiming the circumstances you're under are so unique or because of the intensity of your temptation, or because the cost of obedience is too great, too much to expect of anyone, or because you claim you had no other choice, no way you could see of not sinning. You do hear that sometimes. If I hadn't used porn, I would have gone to prostitutes. If I hadn't yelled abuse at her, I would have hit her. No other choice but to sin. No, no excuses. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. Let's face it, says Paul, the temptation to satisfy our desires is common to us all. Israel's already experienced it. Whether that's a desire for friends, for sexual pleasure, for control, for having the food we crave, for the lifestyle we enjoy, 
all experience those desires. The temptation to think we know better than God what's good for us, to trust ourselves and our own judgment over God's word, that's common. The temptation to demand God prove himself to us, to relate on our terms, not his, that's common. Whatever temptation you're feeling, however strongly you're feeling it, you are not unique. It has happened to others. And we need to hear that because one of the devil's lies is that what is happening to you is exceptional and God's word wasn't made for your circumstance. That's a lie. But in contrast to our unfaithfulness, God is faithful. Faithful to his promise to save, faithful to his purpose to have a people for his own in Christ. And the faithful God gives us a promise. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. Now, this is a promise many misunderstand. Oh, they say, I won't be tempted beyond what I'm able. God will make me a spiritual superman, able to leap strong temptations in a single act of the will. So I don't have to be wise in what I expose myself to, don't have to work at avoiding temptation. But this promise is not given to embolden vain self-confidence in our own godliness. What form does God's not permitting us to be tempted beyond what we are able take? Well, we see it here. His limiting of the power of temptation comes in the form of providing a way of escape, providing a way out. Now, escaping is not glamorous and it's not flattering. To escape, you need to humble yourself, acknowledge, confess your weakness, that you're not strong enough to take on and withstand the raging fire of desire, that you find it, say, only too easy to get drunk when everyone else is drinking, to engage in off-conversation when you're with your mates, only too easy to find that sexual desire is overpowering when you're left alone together, that the desire to impress at work will make you reluctant to confess Jesus. To escape, you've got to be humble enough to acknowledge that despite the plans you've made, you in a sense still have to get in the car and drive away in the face of the approaching fire if you're to live. And you may well have to leave a lot behind, like those who leave their properties as the fire comes down on them. There is a cost, can be a cost to escaping. Others may think you're weird. Some jobs may be closed off to you. Some technology denied to you. Some relationships be lost to you. But God is faithful. He will provide the way of escape. Whether you look for it, however, whether you use it, that will reveal how much you trust his word as the word that gives you life, how much you want to stay faithful to him, whether you believe the prize at the end of the race is worth everything and you never want to disqualify yourself. And that's actually the difference between escaping the desires that would disqualify and escaping the fire that consumes. You see, we're not like the Ukrainian refugees, you know, escaping with our lives at the loss of our homes. We escape with our lives 
from those things that would stop us going home. That's right. When we escape, we give up what we would always lose to gain what we can never lose, the new heaven and earth. Now, up till now, many of the Corinthians, you know, even if feeling a bit uncomfortable, might have been a little puzzled with what Paul has written. So in verses 14 to 23, Paul makes his application explicit. He lets them know that this has not been a theoretical discussion about the history of Israel and what lessons we can learn from it, but that he's been writing to save their lives. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. He speaks out of love and he speaks directly. Flee, he says, from idolatry. Whether they know it or not, the actions of the strong in claiming their knowledge that an idol is nothing gave them freedom to eat in idol temples, to share in the feasting that followed the sacrifice of the animal to the God as part of the worship of the God. Whether they knew it or not, that action has put them in a position of great and imminent danger. Rather than assuring themselves that they're safe, Paul says they've got to flee urgently. They've got to get up and run away if they're not to share in the fate of idolatrous Israel. Now I'm going to leave the explanation of verses 16 to 22 for later when we look at the Lord's Supper. But his basic point, which I hope you got as you listened, is that in sharing in the meals that followed the sacrifices made in the temples of idols, those believers were actually sharing in the worship of demons. And this was wholly incompatible with worshipping the true God by sharing in Christ. Now, there's a lot to unpack in those verses. But I wanted this part of 1 Corinthians 10 included so that you could feel Paul's urgency. Flee, he says, and recognise that he's been writing to rescue people he loves from a real and present danger that they did not recognise. And they didn't recognise it because their desire blinded them to it. That's right. You see, they wanted to be able to eat those sacrifices in idol temples, which were, in a sense, the centre of Corinthian social and economic life. You see, they desired the social connection and the security of being included. They desired the commercial networks and the wealth that created And where meat was a rare inclusion in the diet, well, they desired that their appetite for meat be satisfied. And so they talked themselves out of the obvious, that this was idolatry. Talked themselves out by a claim to knowledge, by taking one truth that an idol is nothing and making it the whole truth, ignoring all the other truths. And brothers and sisters, we can be like them. We can deceive ourselves into thinking idolatry is right because we want to. To persuade ourselves, to persuade ourselves that we can, say, participate in multi faith services where the true God's made equal to lies, 
or share in ancestor rituals. We can do that on the basis that their gods are no gods at all and it's right to foster community or family unity. We can deceive ourselves like that because we desire that social inclusion and approval and the security it brings. Oh, and we can deceive ourselves into thinking sexual immorality, our own or others, is right because we want to, to say, oh, God made me with these desires and everything he makes is good and so he would want me to fulfil them, putting aside what he has so clearly said about the context for sexual expression being marriage because we want to satisfy our desire. And yes, we can deceive ourselves that putting the Lord to the test is right because we want to. We can want something so badly that we demand it of God, make his goodness depend on him giving us what we want. And we can even use the language of faith to veil our lack of faith. And yes, we can deceive ourselves into thinking grumbling is right because we want to. Our bitterness and anger and disappointment with God and the life he's given us in his sovereign wisdom can actually overflow in our speech. Do you know what? Then we talk about the virtue of being honest about how we feel about God and criticise those who would point us away from ourselves to his goodness known in his son and even claim we have a right to be angry and disappointed. You see, God hasn't brought you here tonight for a theoretical conversation, but to rescue you from the real and present dangers that threaten to disqualify you, to cause you to be excluded from God's people, to say to you, beware lest thinking that you stand, you fall. Not a long sentence. You could memorise that. It's a good one to have in your head. Beware lest thinking you stand, you fall. You see, your God's calling you tonight to examine your life and to find the way of escape from ways of acting and thinking that will disqualify you from the prize. Your idolatry, your sexual immorality, your putting the Lord to the test, your grumbling. And as you hear that call, remember that prize is worth everything. Something you could never attain in this life of your own. Something eternal life given you at the cost of the death of the Son of God. And as you think about that, recognise that the life that attains it is the life Paul calls for. A life that's focused on the prize at the end of the race, not thinking that we should get it on now. A life of self-control in all things that trains itself every day to say no to those desires that disqualify us. A life where we learn from the scriptures and receive the encouragement of the scriptures to persevere. A life where we have the humility to use the way of escape our faithful God provides with thankfulness. Not grieved by the loss, but thankful for the eternal gain. You and I may not be Olympians, but in this race, the spiritual race for the eternal prize, none of us can be spectators. So heed God's word and act. 
flee from sin. Hear the urgency. Have nothing to do with it. Learn to fear sinning more than dying or the feeling that you are dying as you do God's will. Flee from sin. Flee to your loving and faithful Saviour with whom there is forgiveness and whose mighty spirit can renew you each in, in you each day the strength to live the life he calls us to. The life Paul says in Paul is that self-controlled, godly, an upright life where to live while we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ who will welcome into his presence all who run this race, the race of faithfulness to him with perseverance. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, in your mercy, don't let us have wasted our time sitting here tonight. Help us to know the goodness of the prize that comes to all who run the race of trusting Jesus to the end, to even to begin in a small way to feel it and stir us up to be people who want that prize and who for its sake (coughs) will exercise self-control in all things. Give us the humility to examine our lives, to see if we are in danger of falling and turn our hearts to you, to trust our Saviour, to find in your kindness the way of escape, which is the way of life, and to know, to know the work of your Spirit each day in us, letting us live that self-controlled life that always looks to Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.